I cannot remember the last time I've been so conflicted about sharing a part of myself with anybody. And it's humorous to me because this conversation with Todd Robinson, who is a tenure track professor at the University of Nebraska in Omaha, is also one of the most fun conversations I've had with a relative stranger. Somehow we navigate into some really vulnerable territory. I think both of us. And I hear some of the questions I ask Todd at different points and I cringe. I'd like to blame it for being earlier on in my podcasting journey. I'm sharing one that I actually recorded all the way back in January. Um, which on that note, this is not a story podcast, even though it's story podcast Wednesday, because I don't have anybody lined up right now to tell stories. I, I have one coming that I'll be recording on the 6th of April. If you're interested in telling a story and you've uh, got a little bit of time coming up here in the next couple of days, I'd love to fast track you right to the front of the line and get you on a podcast, have a conversation. You can tell your story, but this one is not that. This podcast was actually recorded before I redefined or I guess sharpened and refocused on the original purpose of what I was here to do. Um, but I just see so much value in the conversation. And I'm hoping that if you're listening and you cringe at some of my questions and marvel at how well Todd responds, I'm hoping that there's... Yeah, that's my podcast co-host, Chewy, if you can hear him. I'm hoping that there's some value in it for you. I really appreciate you listening. If you do find value here, please take a moment to share this with a friend. Word of mouth is the best way to help a podcast grow. And I am here to help you as a writer, even though I've clearly admitted right at the beginning of this podcast that I am a terrible member of the Omaha Writers community. And taking steps to change some of that as well. Gosh, just feels, ugh, I feel like I'm going to crawl out of my skin right now. I want to let you listen to this episode and hopefully you can forgive me for some of my foolish notions when I was a younger man and probably some of the ones that continue to persist as evidenced in my questions. If you're looking to buy any books by Todd Robinson, or we also mention David Philip Mullins in this episode. And uh, if you want to buy any of their books, I'll have links to those in the show notes. Go out there and read, listen to the podcast. Have a great day. Welcome to Create Collaborate, the show for creative writers aspiring to publish their first book. My name is Jody Sperling, and I'm determined to help you, whether you self-publish or storm the gated walls of agents and editors. Today, you'll be hearing from an industry expert on how they made the leap from unpublished to published, and how you can do it too. I shouldn't have started there, Jody. I should have started... Perhaps with UNO, I think, you know, 2005, I started teaching there. Before that, I'd been in Lincoln for seven years getting my doctorate, which kind of kept me out of the social scene in Omaha um, because I was a slave to the stacks of the library, you know. Mm. Um, so I think really the one-two punch of UNO, um, I taught part-time there for 10 years before I transitioned into being a full-time professor. 
so I had a lot of contact with students, but the main driver was probably, you know, being a poet and going to poetry readings and um, being part of that community and also enjoying live music and art shows and, and just mm -hmm. sort of being a, a good citizen of the kind of Omaha's creative community, you know. I am a terrible citizen of Omaha's creative community. Uh, I find this in-person thing sometimes is a little bit scary. Hey, don't we all? I mean, look, yeah. I got to move through the world with this face. You think it's easy, man? <laughs> look at me, dude. No, don't look at me. I'm always self-conscious, but I'm also, and we all have different comfort thresholds. Um, but for me, I'm really naturally fond of people. Um, mm -hmm. They kind of intrigue me, delight me. And so... Also, I don't like myself that much. So you know, when I'm home a lot by myself, I, it does, it's not good. You know, it's all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy type of a scenario. So, so to me, it there, it's really is therapeutic. It's not just love of art and literature mm. and culture. It's just knowing that I'm happier and healthier generally, not always, but when I'm out in the world. And of course, um, I also enjoyed, you know, drinking for a long time. So that kind of eases. Always, always, <laughs> exactly. always eases things. Yep. <laughs> right. Yeah. On the, on I, the front end anyway. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's a, that's a relationship that I still have, have, uh, you know, both, both and I, I enjoy it. And every once in a while, you know, I have to make the announcement I'm stepping back from drinking because things have kind of, you know, taken a bad toll on my life. Uh, and, and I think probably at this point, my family's like, he's doomed, he's doomed, but, uh, come on, you call me, dude, we'll work it out. We'll meet for coffee, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll get you where you need to be brother. <laughs> so, uh, I, I see you as the kind of guy now in your life, just from picking up on the, the little bit of comments that you've made that at a party, you can actually float through and, and this is, you know, a hypothetical party, but you can float through the crowd that's there and have conversations and find yourself inside of a circle and then pop out of the circle and flow into another one. And I also sense from some of the comments that you made about not liking yourself and feeling uncomfortable in your skin, that there's probably a time in your life when a party was a place where you found a corner that was a little bit darker than the rest of the room and waited for people to come to you or just observed. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Whitman said, I'm large, I contain multitudes. And I think he meant it in a positive way, but um, he also said, do I contradict myself? Very well then I contradict myself. And I, I think, um, yeah, I'm not always garrulous, Captain Extrovert. I'm probably as bipolar as anybody or more. Yeah. So believe me, I've done Irish goodbyes at parties where I haven't <laughs> felt comfortable. Um, yeah, I've, I've tried again and again to find a, a kindred spirit in a space and not found one. Um, but, you know, generally... You, there's an old saying that like uh, you never met a stranger and in a way that's me I really do like people generally I, it's easy for me at least in the beginning to build a rapport mm -hmm. um, to make them laugh you know to sort of say some something they don't normally hear which is what I live for as a writer and a I guess a reader um, so generally yeah and I think this is part of this social network that you're talking about um you know it's uh i got a big personality and i love people mm -hmm. so that's quite a one-two point and i like i said i want to get outside of myself so yeah. it's uh that is the perfect formula for me so for you being different from me i mean it's probably you're fairly comfortable in your own skin 
and maybe i don't know i can't speak i don't know you brother uh (laughs) yeah you know maybe maybe you don't you're not so sure about people (laughs) yeah you know um i think i think it's it's complex. What what I do know is that uh, recently, and this is just a, an off the top of my head example, we'll get to the art, we'll get to the collaborating and the creating part of this podcast. But recently, my brother-in-law had decided to buy a bunch of tickets for the WWE uh, WrestleMania that was in town. Um, he, has a, he has a son. Um, I have a son. They're both uh, the same age in the same class. And uh, I haven't hung out with my brother-in-law really very much at all. I mean, if, if we do, it's a whole big family gathering and I suck at family gatherings, especially the, the in-laws. I like them a lot. I just like freeze up. I don't know what's happening there. And, and so he had invited us and I was thinking, okay, I've got three sons and we can all go. And two of my sons probably are not going to enjoy it. My youngest is going to love it, but I'm going to be stressed and anxious the whole time and freaking out. And, and he's like, it'll be a good bonding experience. And I was like, no, 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 no. If we're bonding, we have to bond somewhere where there's not a billion people yelling and, and other people throwing people on mats and floors and punches and just <laughs> everything that goes with that. I was going to freak out. And I actually ducked out. Uh, and, and I saw him afterwards to pick up my youngest son because we sent him and, and paid for his ticket and everything. And when I saw my brother-in-law, I think I intuited that he was upset. He was not, not mad, but bothered that I had not done that. And, and I'm thinking about that. And it's probably as much as you need to know about who I am is that I feel the guilt of knowing I made the wrong choice, but felt powerless to do anything different. I love that. You know, I don't love your discomfort. Let me, let me clarify, but um, yeah. I love that feeling powerless to, to do otherwise. I, I think we're not as free as we would like to pretend, uh, you know, who knows who's running the chariot of us. I, I don't think it's always um, goodwill or wisdom or even self-preservation. You know, maybe in this case, it was your self-preservation to peel out. Um, yeah, man, it, I, you know, I don't know. I think we're wired so differently, but moreover, you know, the Scottish philosopher, David Hume said everywhere I search for myself, but I cannot find myself. And so Hmm. I think who knows like what wind blew through your sails and was like, no, go, go. I mean, I, I do the exact same thing. So yeah. And it's also a global pandemic with a new variant, you know, (laughs) so I'm sure that factored in two years of being kind of on the margins of any kind of socializing Mm-hmm. means all of us are a little more squirrely with one another mm-hmm. and not just out of fear of transmission, but just how do you talk to people? Uh, who's comfortable right now, my man? I, I yeah. you know, who's, I mean, in, 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 in moments we can be comfortable and happy, but as a whole, man, we're living in this bizarre milieu, you know, mm-hmm. people are starting to really believe that it's a simulation because it's too weird and terrible Probably. I don't think they mean that as a utopic ideal. Yeah. Did you, did you hear that very often before the pandemic started? Cause I recall like the matrix and whatnot, as far as the simulation goes, but in the last couple of years, it's a, you are correct. It's a serious conversation. And it, it, sometimes you are like, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Right. And right. It seems kind of plausible in a way. way. And I don't know if that's because so much of our consciousness has been strapped to the internet. You know, Patricia Lockwood has a new novel out. I can't think of the title, but she calls it the portal, you know, and, Mm. uh, and, you know, talks about how 
A, how kind of dumb it generally is and B, how it completely dominates us all. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, but you're right. I mean, the matrix is 20 years ago and mm-hmm. we was talking about it and it was, it riffed on, uh, was it Baudrillard or I can't think of who, maybe, you know, but uh, on some French literary theorists, a simulacra and simulacrum. We can okay. fact check that shit later. Yeah, but, uh, I'll do oh, it. Yeah, we didn't talk about cursing. Maybe. No, no. Yes. Cursing. Yeah. You can curse <laughs> shit. Damn. Hell. <laughs> Thanks, man. Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell, Hell yeah. is not a curse, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I heard on another of my favorite podcasts, they were like, uh, I've guests who comment on say if they can't actually curse, they can't be themselves. Like if they have to censor, good luck getting them to flow. So yeah. Yeah. Same way. Ooh, flow. Good word, man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I make a deal. I curse a lot in class. And so I end up oh, nice. after a couple of weeks, you know, it's, I don't know if it's nice, but <laughs> thanks for your approval. But ultimately I had to make a deal with the freshman in the in the fall every fall they do um which is i will buy the class of pizza for every f-bomb that i drop and it's the only (laughs) way to stop me man i i caps me at like 10 pizzas and then i'm like all right i can't afford anymore yeah i'm trying to remember so i was i I went to uh eastern washington university for my mfa program and sam ligan you probably have run into him i swear you have but uh he he may be cursed in class. I don't, maybe, um, oh man, he's the kind of guy he should. He seemed like he was probably on cocaine most of the time. I don't think he was, Sam. I don't think you were using cocaine. Um, he's had Sam so listening. much energy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, oh man. But I have cocaine energy, but no, uh, no cocaine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. So you guys would be kindred spirits for sure. Yeah. Um, one of, only one of us could survive. I think that, that meeting, you know, poetry, teaching. Those are two things that are typically or stereotypically, I want to, yeah, stereotypically more reserved. I think that's the right way to say you have slam poetry come along, which changes, I think the way that the public receives it a little bit, you can go to a reading with a slam poet and feel like a ton of energy. But if you, I'm going to forget his name. So we'll, we'll just go with Ted Kuzer. I don't think Ted Kuzer has ever really gotten a ton of energy at a reading. He's going to be pretty, pretty straight across the line, read his poems. They're going to touch you and you're going to be moved. And I love Ted. In fact, this is a, a, a Ted koozie that I'm using right now. Hey, nice, man. So, oh, dude, um, we need to get this on video, man. That's well, it is on video. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Unfortunately, I can't, I can't. Yeah. I won't, I won't use it video yet until I get a little bit bigger, but yeah. And uh, so how do you feel that your energy fits with poetry? Do you feel like poetry right now is moving in that direction where there's more energy and more, more uh, just latent power or. Oh, there's latent power, dude. I mean, enough to (laughs) to make someone get an MFA. (laughs) No, 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 man. I I love everything that you just said from Kuzer all the way down and Ted was Kuzi all the way down. Uh, (laughs) Ted was my, was my teacher at UNL and you're right. You know, in terms of his manner, it's so, it's very measured. Mm -hmm. It's, it's warm, but it's not uh, in, it, it's intense in a in a sort of way that he he gives you attention. There's that kind of intensity. Yeah, but yeah. It, it's not the kind of cocaine energy. To, right. I think that's the last time I'll use that phrase. Maybe not. <laughs> Probably not. But, <laughs> and his poems tend to be really, you know, they're also these kind of warm sweater type poems, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, fence lines and you know so yeah. forth, grackles, whatever. Uh, beautifully <laughs> wrought. I don't mean yeah. to slight them because they are majestic in their way but 
the energy is in, yeah, it's in attention. It's mm-hmm. in care. It's in love of language. It's in engagement with other people on the page and in person. Does that come across in a reading? No, I think right. it's, yeah, it's much more intimate than that. So for mm-hmm. me, I think, um, you know, it does kind of come to slam. Um, I think, you know, when I came back to Omaha from Lincoln, after a couple of years, I got involved with uh, Matt Mason and a, a yeah. little bit, I'm not a slam poet, but I did rip off some of his slam poems and I went to some slams and, and I love that dynamic. And he was a crucial figure, he and others, crucial figures in a in my early kind of forays into the Omaha literary community. Um, so I think that sort of joy and collaborative spirit and transgressive sort of energy um, is a huge part of my vibe as a Mm. professor and as a poet. Um, I used to, I think I've gone a little away from that over the years. Um, I think now, maybe it's the pandemic, dude, but Mm. also I have a kind of a sick wife. She's got a long-term disability and I I find I'm circling these kind of very minute domestic kind of themes, which when I go to read, if we ever have public readings again, aren't going to be thrilling. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, the energy will be again, that really minute internal, like language based energy rather than, Hey, but I love inter poem banter and, Mm -hmm. um, kind of self-commentary and breaking that fourth wall of the reverent audience and the serious poet. So for me, the energy, there's two different kinds, right? There's the poem, which is an art, a, a machine of language designed to have a certain effect that can be very serious and downbeat and muted. But my persona, and I love people and I love to, I love to sort of tickle them and make mm-hmm. them laugh and be a little transgressive. So I'm always going to have this, maybe it's just being a Gemini dude. I don't know, but I'm always <laughs> going to have this kind of split between this serious, sad poet dude and this like Garrett, you know, I don't know, master of ceremonies, like cosmic clown persona. So yeah, as you can hear, I, I, I love it. It's, it is very unique in my experience of the poetry community. So again, going back to EW, cause I don't have a ton of experience with poetry in general, but Jonathan Johnson was the kind of like the main figure in the, the poetry part of that MFA. And that guy, if you got him in a, in a room, like he put together a lot of almost like salon kind of events over at his own house, he would have students come over. His wife would cook. We would all talk. There'd be a few other professors there. It was a very cool, intimate place, but he's not high energy. Like you, you are unique in the the poets that I met. And Matt Mason would be another guy. He's a little more high energy. Um, Probably I've never spent enough time with him to really comment one way or another. Now, Sarah, she was uh, a a teacher of mine and Mm -hmm. taught me poetry and was far kinder about my poems than I deserved. Um, But her encouragement is a direct line to the fact that I still am holding onto this dream that I can actually get published one day. So I love that. Yeah, that's great. I hope you get a chance to tell her if you haven't, you know, it's, it's, um, it's important for us to know that we have these kind of influences and impacts. Um, It's great to hear that years later. And she is amazing. And also, Mm -hmm. you know, I mentioned Matt and others, and she's one of those, one of those people who was a dear friend and mentor and colleague, both at UNO and um, 
and as a writer in this community and part of her feedback series at Kaneko, which I briefly co-hosted, I read at, you know, mm. um, so she's a dynamo and, and a, yeah. obviously a crackerjack writer and teacher. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're incredibly lucky here, but yeah, I think, I think, um, I don't know, dude, I think it's, each of us is a person before we're a poet. And so whatever yeah. our persona is or our energy or our geist, our, you know, call it mm-hmm. what you will. Yeah. Um, but yeah, probably writers in general, as you know, are, are going to be maybe somewhat more mature or quiet or, yeah, I think I, I am more of an extrovert than most writers that I've met. Yeah. But, but not all, you know, we're some outliers and probably it doesn't serve my poetry that well, actually, dude, because mm. I, I don't, I haven't really kind of, I thought this would be a good month. I've had a month off. I thought it'd be a yeah. good time with the pandemic and winter mm. to kind of sink into this darkness, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, make the words uh, bend and so on, but I haven't really felt the impulse. So I think for me, maybe it is because personality comes before the poetry. I, I probably do need to be out in the world. You know, yeah. Muriel Rookheiser said, breathe in experience, breathe out poetry. And I, I'm with her. I think I need to be out there amongst y'all picking up that pollen and then taking it yeah. back rather than just sitting alone pensively, you know? Yeah. There seems to be a balance. Um, I wonder to a degree if uh, the podcast that I'm making right now will eventually wear off because there's got to be some point when my brain recognizes that while I'm having a conversation with you and I have the benefit of seeing you through Zoom, even though the listeners won't get that benefit, um, it does feel like a one-on-one. So it feels like a a sit down with a coffee or a beer or whatever you might be drinking, or, you know, maybe you're just fasting for a long time because that's popular (laughs) right now. Um, it, It does feel like I'm getting the social itch scratched. But there is something else about being in that room. Like I'm even looking at, at the background of your house and you don't need to describe it for anything. It's a beautiful looking house, but uh, yeah, it's really nice. Um, and I'm thinking that would totally change the way that I would feel about our conversation right now, because you've taken a lot of care of the environment that you're living in. There's a lot of intention about the art that's on the walls. Uh, what is a raw wood look? What's a painted look? All of those kind of things. And you walk into that and you feel that intention and the environment becomes part of what we're doing in our, our collaborative conversations, I guess. Yeah, I love that. I, I, you're maybe the fourth or fifth podcast I've done. I'm not sure, but I've never thought that of the artifact it would become. I've always thought of who's, who's the person I'm talking to. And generally that's been, it's always been lovely. It's been, I love conversations and I don't know you, but you are obviously smart and interesting and interested and, you know, um, self self-effacing like probably all of us <laughs> all the good people <laughs> but um yeah and I, I it is nice being able to see you if i just heard your voice it'd be a little trickier so you you have a very friendly visage and uh oh, you know i've got this buttery light behind you and <laughs> yeah yeah <It's, laughs> it is the funny thing about uh doing podcasts at night during the day you can see so i live in an old like 1890s house uh in oakland nebraska and mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's no getting away from every every wall here looks old it shows its age it's plaster and lath and um that's a another story for another time but uh yeah this this house is has got character that's cool man yeah i'm uh i think our house is 94 so we're a little behind you and it's in dundee wow. so just kind of yeah. yeah 
That area is amazing. So that's a nice segue. You mentioned Dundee. Um, my connection to you, like I said, seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, you've showed up on comments on my Facebook for years and years and years. I've never interacted with you because I, I, I don't know why I would have. I mean, other than mm-hmm. to just like a comment of yours or something. But it just so happens that you officiated the wedding of my friend, Chris. Um, and that's how you and I have the reason to be talking right now. And so I guess I'm kind of interested in your take on being neighborly because that's how this starts. And you are, again, a unicorn in neighborliness compared to how most of us millennials perceive neighborliness, um, <laughs> clearly. Hey, well, let me let me first, I always kind of qualify every comment, it seems, but I hide out from the neighbors sometimes and I'll step out and see some and I'll go the opposite direction. So we all have <laughs> yeah. that nature. So forgive yourself if, if you need it, you know, if yeah. you need carte blanche to, to hide. But anyway, yeah, I, I um, well, I'll speak to Chris first, who's amazing. And, you know, mm-hmm. the funny thing is, my man, and it, this does speak to this dichotomy of being open and closed at the same time, we have this this is not very neighborly, or maybe it's the ultimate, maybe it's the platonic ideal of neighborhoods in a way, because we have this sort of long feud with our next door neighbor <laughs> <laughs> who happened to be, and maybe Chris and, and Mary don't want me talking about this, but this, this neighbor we have this feud with happened to be their neighbor as well. So for years, we had this neighbor between us who's, you know, um, I don't know. I guess this isn't about her, but basically incredibly neurotic about her lawn and property lines and mm. how everything, including other people's houses looks and, and oh, so geez. on. Yep. Yeah. And so, so we assumed that Mary and Chris were tight with her because they lived next door on oh, the other side. Okay. And they assumed we were tight with her because they also <laughs> had, it's amazing, dude. So we were like two houses away and we never spoke for like four years or something. Oh, geez, I don't know. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, it's all, and then we <laughs> finally met. I, I, I vaguely recall like a block party. And of course, they're wonderful, right? Like mm, Mary yeah. and Chris, there's no one better. I mean, they're funny. They're lively. They're real. Like, you know, they're, they have really interesting experiences and they're just, they're like hot. They're everything, man. (laughs) And and I was like, oh my God, I feel like I've been deprived of this profound relationships for, for four years, you know? And so we just hit it off. And of course, one of the big selling points of our new friendship was how much we, we each despised our <laughs> <laughs> the, the sandwich, the actual Oreo cream between you. <laughs> was to get rid of it. Yeah, to quote Spinal Tap, shit sandwich, man. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah. And so we got to trade tales of how we'd each been wronged and how we'd reacted to that. Anyway, so yeah, that was, uh, that was marvelous. And um, And I think that should speak to all of us about the appeal of kind of getting to know these strangers who live amongst us. You know, Um, I think we have other neighbors across the other side of the street where when we first moved in, they were having like a garage sale and they were all having mimosas in the front lawn. And we were like, hey, mimosas, front lawn, that's cool. And then we all bonded. And before you knew it, you know. We, we all went to Jamaica together. So, you know, yeah. and all had other adventures and, and I have many friends in the neighborhood. It's true. Um, I walked to UNO a lot and that's how I met Dave Mullins. I don't know if you know Dave, but he was, yeah, yeah he's a novelist, short story writer, and um, 
he's another way that I'm really plugged in Omaha's community. And he's wow, sort okay. of like me in that he is a writer with a very, mm-hmm. with a much more serious dedication to the discipline, mm-hmm. but he's also a social gadfly goes to he is. And music. Yeah. Big gotcha. time. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, I completely misinterpreted him. Okay. Ah, yeah. Interesting. How, how so? I'd love to hear that. Maybe the your readers. Yeah. No, wanna... no, please. Because I, I fanboyed real, real hard for him when he wrote greetings from below that mm-hmm. book hit me at the very center of the core of the core of my center. Like the, just mm-hmm. the smallest, like n- nucleus of me, that book was like me when I read it, I thought I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm this guy. I am Nick and I'm going through <laughs> the world, having all of those experiences. And somehow he stole that story. And so that gave me a sense of, I, I don't want to use too big of a word, but reverence. Like I just thought this book is everything that I should be doing as a fiction writer. This is everything. Nice. And I did. So I tried reaching out to him a few times and I, I probably scared him away. Cause I was like, Hey, we should like, you know, write together or some something and not understanding just the, the distance. And so for that reason, I think he was a little more reserved. I guess the happy ending here is that he's got his, his new book and um, I have a platform where I'm able to do a little bit of free advertising. And that's one thing that every podcast episode does, whether we talk about books or uh, oil rigs, whatever, there will hmm. always be a break. That's a free advertisement for a new book by an author. And so he actually recorded one for me and we'll have that on this podcast. And that's excited, exciting yeah. to me because it gives me the opportunity to give something to him. He gave such a huge thing in greetings from below. So, but anyways, I've always thought of him as feeling really reserved and almost like cerebral, more of that David Foster Wallace kind of character mm-hmm. is how I've read him from just the limited interactions I've had. Well, cerebral, he definitely is. And you got that from reading Greetings from Below. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these stories set in Vegas with kids like us, suburbanites, latchkey kids, you know, I don't know, um, teenagers and 20-somethings who, you know, drink too much and do too many drugs and have too much sex or not enough, as the case (laughs) may be, you know, right, moving through that kind of landscape that's kind of I don't know, at once like hyper acute and kind of ghostly and toxic, right? I I think, yeah, you characterize him well as cerebral, but, and I think in terms of him maybe not responding to your efforts, he guards his time yeah. pretty well, I think. And he, he should. He, yeah, agreed. I I, uh, I think he's committed to writing so much also at like you, a parent, and he's teaching, and I, I think um, he's good at, yeah, making a space for that every day. So I say yes to everything because the hmm. aforementioned self, dis, dis, self-hatred, I just want to get out of myself. And so hmm. anybody who helps me do that, yes, please. But, yeah. but um, yeah, so, but he also, you know, I met him, I don't, it's a little vague. It's been about 15 years maybe, but, um, okay. you know, he was in his front yard and I was walking to school and we struck up a casual, speaking of neighbor, he lives a block and a half from me, by the way, on my gotcha. walk to school. Okay. And we struck up this conversation and found out we both taught at UNO and, and, um, you know, we, we became very, very, very close friends. And, um, and man, that guy, like he, he'll be on a sailboat one week and he'll be at a Wilco show in Chicago the next. And <laughs> I mean, I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he yeah. does everything he does. It feels like he, he really packs a lot of living into the average day. Mm-hmm. And he's a marvelous person and he he's, has great contacts throughout mm-hmm. the city and nation and, um, so he's introduced me to a lot of marvelous human beings who I count as dear, dear friends. So you've alluded to your relationship to writing poetry. I'm interested 
when are you most productive? Because this month wasn't a good month for you. Um, just as you were, you know, saying for yourself and what, when do you find it comes easy and can you reflect on any of the things that make that happen? Boy, I wish I could. I, I, yeah. uh, that might help me, <laughs> you know, be <laughs> yeah. a little more, be a little bit more, um, aggressive or assertive or polished or, per, you know, perfect, yeah. more perfect. Uh, anyway, um, so last January, I made a, a vow, a resolution to write every day for mm. 2021. And awesome. it, it, I started hot. And I think for January, February, March, I was writing a poem a day and a lot of really good poems came out. I, I wish I maybe taken some notes. I don't remember. Were they written in the morning or at night in the mm. middle of the day? I don't know. Generally, I like to read before I write. That's a pretty common practice, I think, just to kind of make the world go away a little bit and also to hone those powers of concentration and observation to see what might be possible, uh, an entry point into a poem. Like if you read a poem that starts with a question, maybe you want to start a poem with a question, right? Mm -hmm. Or this is my list of enemies. Maybe I'll start a poem with an enemies <laughs> list, you know? So I think that's a good method generally. Um, so I've started, I, I quit writing a poem a day, maybe in September, I ran out of juice, but, um, okay. And I made a vow to do it again this year. So here we are on the 17th of January, 2022, where we were when we had this conversation, because now people are listening to a tape. Whoa. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> exactly. Uh... <laughs> yeah. This is 2025 now. It's insane. <laughs> You're a gem, man. Tell your mama I said so. Um, <laughs> she was uncertain, but it turned out great. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, um, so I made the same promise, but I'm kind of in that September energy where, okay. you know, it's, it feels like an obligation. It doesn't feel yeah. Yeah, good. So, so when, man, I, I think probably I need to be in school with students, you know, reading and yeah. writing and talking about writing. I, I think that is the time it's, yeah. I would love for it to be in summer when I have three months off and that's the time to really be a great poet. But isolation just doesn't suit me, you know, it yeah. doesn't suit me personally. It doesn't suit me artistically. Mm -hmm. So probably that's what it comes down to meeting new people, hearing their stories, reading with them, talking about writing, you know, um, okay. sort of pushing at the frontiers of what I know. There's a weird thing about having obligations aside from our art that causes us to be productive. Um, before I got married, I was not terribly productive at writing. I was good at going to the gym. You might imagine <laughs> seemed kind of important for some reason. I don't know why, uh, but I, I made, I made that sometimes twice a day. It was awesome. But uh, you know, some days I got a couple of words on the page. Some days I pretended like I was going to, and then suddenly I got married and my time was a little bit like reduced. And I found I actually was able to write more. And then I had kids and wow, I, I like since having kids, I've never been more productive as a writer. It's, it's really strange. So what I hear you saying is in teaching um, that, that structure of having to uh, grade, interact with, read, respond to students, it does something to you and the social interaction. I think that's the other piece that you're saying is it's almost like a, you're forced to have a social interaction based on how many classes you're teaching. And that routine helps you as well. Am I, am I reading too much into that? 
No, you're not. But I think you stated it best. And that is, you know, really, and you gave me my answer, which is the, the poems are best when I steal them from the day, you know, when yeah. it's I've got 30 minutes before class or maybe an hour or whatever. But, mm -hmm. you know, I should be doing something else. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to write a poem. And it becomes a little act of transgression. It becomes. Yeah, I agree. I think you're absolutely right. And um, to have less time means the time is more precious you don't want to waste it you get this kind of hyper acuity and in summer and over this winter break i don't have a lot going on especially during a pandemic right so man yeah. i i'm still in sweatpants bro like i <laughs> just i brush my teeth but not much more than that and um yeah i i think that's really what it comes down to it's not subtle it's not a secret it's just it needs to be part of a balanced diet, you know? Yeah. So, uh, and as you say, with kids, you became even, even more productive. And, mm -hmm. and um, so on the one hand, you're, you're feeding material into the hopper, mm -hmm. um, voices and discussions and stories and emotions, right. And ideas. And on the other hand, that time is so compressed. It allows that concentration of focus. It squeezes, you know, like in the vice, you're in the vice press of time and, yeah. and something comes out of that. And I, I think you're absolutely right. So the trick will be going forward. Um, well, I'll be back in school. That'll help, but kind of making it narrower, making the aperture of writing narrower instead of this broad, whatever mess of any time in the day. I, yeah. I love that. I'm trying to figure out how to go down this next road. Cause it is, one that is misunderstood, I think, by most people. And so I guess let me let me front load part of the conversation by using the terrible cliched phrase, those who can do, those who can't teach. We both know that's <laughs> not true. It's an awful yeah, phrase. Yeah, that's terrible, man. It it's should be expunged. Nothing should shit. be expunged, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's crap. We do need to redefine it. We need to rethink what it means because... I think on the one extreme side of that phrase is a former professor I had who got on with an amazing uh, publisher when it was the big six. He published his novel to a great amount of acclaim. Every job out there that was open was open to him. He got to choose whatever he wanted. He took a lucrative job. He took a well-paying job. He took a prestigious job. He did his thing. And then he didn't write for almost a decade. Because he got just wrapped up in what he was doing and the teaching and the acclaim and like the fame of that position. I think that that's what happens. So I'm going to speculate and I'm going to use Sarah Mason as somebody to speculate with. Um, she used to spend so much energy on each of my poems. There would be more of her handwriting on my poem than there would be lines and words in my poem. She thought so deeply about my work and improved it immeasurably because of that. I'm getting this sense from you too, that you love your students. Um, in, in, in the, uh, the, the y'all version of it, you know, there's not one specific student you love, <laughs> but you love all of them. You want them to succeed. You're excited. They're there. Their passion gets you going and you spend a lot of time thinking about them to the detriment of your own work that happens. There's the extreme guy over here who got fame and probably got carried away. And then there's a kind of a smaller situation where you're passionate about the work that you're doing. How much does it steal from what you're able to produce? And have you made peace with that? Or is it a struggle? 
I love that question. That is a perennial question, as so many contemporary writers have found income through teaching or exploitative working conditions through adjunct teaching. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. we can talk adjunct on part <laughs> <Yeah>. two. <laughs> Sorry, man. I'm the king of digressions, but uh, and maybe weird little moments of manifestos. But anyway, um, I, I think that's a great point, and. And I'm, I'm in that Sarah model where I also really bleed a lot of ink on student writing, um, in part because I enjoy doing so, uh, mm-hmm. and in part to help them, hopefully. Um, and it feels like they deserve it. You know, if yeah. they're, they're going to take this, if they're going to take a writing class instead of criminal justice or in addition to, or, or you know, whatever, biochem, whatever, I think, I think writing deserves the same or more attention to um, to time and discipline and so on. Mm-hmm. So anyway, and it does take a lot of time. I spend way more time on class prep and grading than I do on writing. No question. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I, there is some cross-pollination of those. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not an obvious relationship, but somehow it feeds me and nurtures me. And if I'm fed and nurtured then I'm able to work maybe maybe Mm. I mean because the thing is with writing too we know that that anxiety and depression can also in a twisted way fuel writing right Mm -hmm. um maybe so I know Wordsworth's famous you know uh, motion recollected in tranquility there is something about that peaceful state of making but Mm -hmm. but um I don't know in a way this difficult time I've had with my wife for the last few years has been good for the writing because it's given me a topic. It's given me an energy. It's given me a difficulty, a conundrum that has no solution. And, and in a way I'm in that labyrinth and I like, like is the wrong word, but I'm interested yeah. in moving through it. But anyway, back to the question of teaching and writing. Um, I know at UNO, and I'm sure it was true in Washington and so on, and you've been at UNO as well, that the assumption in writing programs is that teachers, professors are active writers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, How we have to be, to be in a position to teach, you know? Um, Now there are, I guess, in the wider world, examples of people who kind of hit that grand slam early and then kind of get stopped up or coast or whatever. But as far as my colleagues, um, everybody is, is writing and publishing and, um, and I think it's all of a piece anymore. You know, that's our life. Um, I think that they are so inextricably linked, but yeah, in terms of time, it's not balanced, but what's balanced, my man. I mean, who's living a balanced life right now? Who's eating a balanced diet right now? Like literally food wise, you know, who's consuming balanced media or, I mean, yeah. You know, the trick is, as you say, to kind of carve out enough time for it, but is writing, I've never thought of teaching or grading or whatever as a threat to writing. Mm -hmm. Um, Even when I was teaching four classes a semester, which is a giant load, um, I don't know, I still, in a way, it it nurtured the writing as well. So I was still writing and publishing a little bit. So, and I think in a tenure track position that I'm in now, there's more pressure to publish now mm. that doesn't automatically mean good writing. Sure. But in a way, it does light a fire that 
that I am looking to submit more often. And because the cupboards are a little bare on, on, on stuff I haven't published yet that's of any quality, then I have to write. So I actually, you know, I think, I think maybe there is more of a one-to-one relationship between teaching as a career and writing as a career. I, I, I don't think they're antithetical. Now, look, you just Walt Whitman us. You, you contradicted yourself <laughs> and turned straight back around. <laughs> Bro, none of this makes sense, my man. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It is true. So from your, from your vantage point, go ahead and debunk a couple of myths for any of the, the writers, artists out there who are listening. Um, your position does not give you the ability to trade favors with people. And you, you haven't published in the New Yorker because you, you uh, are a professor at UNO, right? <laughs> I haven't published in the New Yorker, first and foremost, because <laughs> I've never submitted to the New Yorker because I knew I'd be rejected. But I would like to see what their rejection letter is like. Is it, is it just a one-line email like everybody else's? Like, we appreciate the opportunity to read your work, but it's not what we're looking for right now? Or would it be like, you know, Louis Menand is giving you a personal <laughs> denial in his yeah. inimitable style? Anyway, um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I'm answering your question exactly, but what I would say is when we are members of a literary community, opportunities arise. When we're members of any community, opportunities arise, right? And I'm not talking like graft or corruption, although that inevitably arises too, but, you know, getting to know Matt in 2006 or seven or whatever meant that when he did this filling, he got a grant to fill that empty room by slowdown. Yeah. Um, and I had been going to readings and, you know, writing that he invited me to participate. And then I was in that anthology and then, and the poems that I blatantly ripped off from him, I was able to read and publish elsewhere. And, you know, and I'm, I am invited to submit to magazines sometimes, not the New Yorker, but, but some good magazines by dint of my service to Mm -hmm. writing um, by dint of some tiny measure of accomplishment. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, Chris isn't part of Chris Bow isn't part of right. a, a literary community, but she is part of a community and we have a, a real great rapport and she obviously has one with you. And, and yeah. this is kind of really, to me, it's not, it, it is about that. It's about what is your, what are you known for? What, what energy do you send out into the world? Is it toxic or is it healing? Is it yeah. friendly or is it off putting? Is it highly intellectual or kind of middle brow and, yeah. And naturally, the longer you're around and the more connections you make in whatever field, uh, people will will come to your to your, you know, they'll call your name, come to your life yeah. if, if that's what they're looking for. You open up the multiverse of directions that we can go right here, because um, you you kind of you talk about the fact that community does confer uh, status. And that's true in the best possible way. It should happen that way. If you are a police officer, uh, you should have the backing of the police community. Um, that, that should be part of what's happening. If you are a, a professor of the arts, you should have the opportunity to talk to other people, uh, your colleagues, and your colleagues happen to run magazines and journals and things like that. So you should have opportunities to get past the, the 
the kids who are the first readers. And for anybody listening, I'm going to take a second to just kind of vent a little bit because this is true of me and many of my classmates when I was in undergrad. And um, I feel guilty about it, but it's true of all of us who have done it, or many of us. I can't say all because there are the Dostoevsky's fools out there who just give it their all from day one. When you get a pile of 15 fiction submissions that you have to read from Wednesday to Wednesday, 10 at least, probably more, you cut after the first page because they don't capture you. It's not a fair reading. It's not a fair way to go, but it's what happens. Nope. Yep. And, and, and that's where community comes in. Because if you've got the email of the guy who runs that journal and you can shoot it over to him, he might not read it himself. She might not read it herself, but she is going to send it to somebody she trusts. And that person is not going to read the first page and say, screw this, unless you just didn't put the work in. So I I do want to put that rant aside and just say, I love the way that you responded to that because really you could have just said that's correct. Like we're not, we're not, you know, patting each other on the back. This isn't a good old boys club. This is really, truly hard work eventually leads to success, but you also put in hard work of relationships. The the, the fact that you're a professor took a, a damn lot of hard work. So there's that. But then you also mentioned Chris and you talk about good people and bad people and kind of just that, that community that goes there. And I'll out myself by saying, when I first met Chris, I was also a young man, like a teenager. And I was coming into a time in my life where the church came along and told me, you know, God will save you. He will fix you. He will cleanse you. And I bought it in a real deep fundamentalist kind of way. And I looked at people like Chris and said, you're living in sin. You got to quit doing what you're doing. And uh, I know that had to have hurt her and other people around her. I should have never done what I did. I didn't know I was doing it. I I meant it well, which is horrible to say. There are people out there who, who do horrible, hateful, vitriolic things well-meaning. And then one day you wake mm-hmm. up and you see something different and uh, it changes. And it's awesome that, that Chris kind of went through that whole wave with me and has been so kind. And I think mm-hmm. that that's part of the artistic community as well. Part of the wider community is that we forgive each other over the long term. Yeah, I think that's possible. I hope it is. It better be. I think you're right because probably we all slight one another you know, a million different ways all the time. So forgiveness without it, all is lost. So man, that's, that's great. I really appreciate you sharing that with me. I, you know, I mean, man, I, I I roll on my own bed of nails over things I've said and done. Uh, And if you want examples, I'll, I'll I'll pull them out of this (laughs) charnel pit of myself, but uh, (laughs) Yeah, I, uh, I'm not here to seek or give absolution, but I, I think that's yeah. a powerful story that you tell. And it's a, a deeply hopeful story. You know, I, that's yeah. the beauty of it. And, you know, man, I'm, I'm an AA. And I, I think one of our sayings, it's supposed to be anonymous, so I shouldn't have told anybody, but it's uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, regret avails us nothing. And there are reasons for that. Mm-hmm. A lot of reasons, which I won't get into now, but one of them is that our mistakes help us help others um, Yeah. <clears throat> in lots of different ways, right? Like on the one hand, they show us error from, you know, they show us cruelty from kindness or what have you, um, or self-care versus self-harm. 
but also they they point to the possibility of change and growth and healing mm. and um that's what your story really does so yeah. and i i you know not to make a torturous kind of short <laughs> leap back to what we were talking about with writing yeah. but but it is really easy to be a resentful writer and a bitter writer because mm -hmm. rejection is so imbued and, yes. and promised in that life and uh, in lots of different ways from, from failing to write well, from failing to have anybody want to read your stuff, from them not liking it to rejection from literary magazines all the way. It's always there. Um, but, well, and I should say... Um, there's a right way to respond to that in a wrong way. You know, Samuel Beckett's like fail again, fail better. Yeah. You know, um, that's maybe the right way. The wrong way is to think that's ah, just a cabal of, you know, highly intellectual um, white tower, you know, ivory tower mm -hmm. people. And they're never going to let me in because they don't like what I do. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe that's true, but there mm -hmm. probably are, again, to speak to this theme of community, there are other people who will let you in yeah. and you need to keep trying and keep writing and keep studying. And I always think ultimately the best reward as a writer is in the writing. It's not in the mm -hmm. publishing. It's not in a reading. It's not in a prize. It's in that floaty kind of feeling you get when you're sort of swept away yeah. in language, imagination, observation, memory, whatever. But, um, yeah, dude, I've been rejected. I mean, if I have a submittable account, those of you who don't know, <laughs> submittable is like a clearinghouse for submissions, you know, keeps track of that. And the rejections are, man, they there's like 80 <laughs> acceptances yeah. or like right. 12, yeah. you know, which is. <laughs> and that's pretty good odds, actually. So, <laughs> right, you know. right. Yeah, most lit mags reject like 97% or whatever yeah. of, of applicants. And I think for fiction, you're writing fiction, right? I mean, yeah. it's yep. way harder. Because you're asking them to give you 10 or 20 Lots of pages, pages. right? Mm -hmm. And for me, yeah. often I get one. I get one to four pages, man. So, yeah, yeah that's a tell you. I, man, you get more readers, though. I mean, I, you yeah. know, I know people who don't have big national reputations and can sell mm -hmm. 10,000 books of yes. fiction. There's probably five poets in America who can sell 10,000 books of poetry. So, so we're the we're the chumps in, in the broader conversation of, of create collaborate. That is part of the, the interest is I had um, a, an artist on not too long ago uh, who, who paints a lot of oil painting. Um, he used a varnish to, to kind of finish off his paintings and he's able to reach out to his community now on Instagram. This didn't used to exist. Uh, even as recently as five years ago, there was no such thing. So, so visual artists had to count on galleries. Then all of a sudden, Instagram and this visual explosion, this new platform came. And for just a short period of time, he rode a wave. He accidentally painted something that, that caught the, the zeitgeist and phew, he's off to the races. And he sold a ton of paintings. And then he kind of realized, like, I'm tired of painting eyes. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do something else. <laughs> sales dropped off right away. It's so it's sad, but it's true, but it's cool. Also that visual arts now has a way to sell a lot more than it did. But the difference that I'm starting to discover is if you're a musician, you get a chance. Once your band has kind of a flow and something that's going, you can book at the Sydney in Benson. I don't, is it it's still the Sydney? I don't know. I haven't been in a while, but anyways. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I've yeah. been up there in a bit, yeah. man. I sad yeah. to say, but right. Yeah. The waiting room, places like that in Omaha, you can book gigs. 
Um, and so you can have a small amount of money, a small amount of energy, and and really a quickly loyal fan base. If they've seen you, they've had some drinks in them, they've danced to your music, you quickly can build that loyalty. Whereas a poet, boy, you're you're sitting on it for a long time. It takes a while to get a loyal <laughs> following. It takes a while yeah. to yeah make that money. Um, but the cost, huh. the, the the barrier to entry is zero. If you've got a pencil and paper, which costs nothing, or a napkin you're off to the races. So every art kind of has its trade-off of what you're getting and what you're not getting. I love that point, man. Yeah. We, we perhaps have the lowest barrier to entry, as you say, paper and a pen and you're good to go a phone really. Right. So, I mean, and it can be produced anywhere. It can be consumed anywhere. It's generally free. Um, which causes problems on the, you know, remuneration end, but in terms of, uh, in terms of making, consuming it, yeah, it is easy. You don't need electricity if it's in the day. I mean, really it is, and it's an ancient form. I mean, it's as old as any human art form. I mean, I'm sure it predates those cave pointings at Lascaux or whatever, Lascaux. I don't know. My French is a little (laughs) poor, forgive me. Uh, (laughs) I'm certain it does. So yeah. Um, but right. The trade-off sort of is right. That, uh, yeah, the world isn't going to beat, um, a path to your, to your poem. Um, but you know, what are we measuring our lives by? Right. Mm -hmm. Like I I know that with algorithms clicks matter and obviously money has always and will always matter, but poetry has brought so much to me. I mean, just in terms of man, in terms of community, you know, uh, to keep that word flowing around, teachers, mm-hmm. students, classmates, um, peers, man, readings. I love readings. I love to sit there and learn and, and uh, travel. And, uh, you know, I've got a couple of books and, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's boundlessly giving. Um, yeah. So have, my lifetime poetry earnings cannot exceed $2,000, <laughs> but, but yeah. in terms of the real, the real riches, um, I, I don't think I could compare it to much else in my life for being the most generative. So yeah. Huzzah. Amen, man. <laughs> Beautiful place to land it. <laughs> I so appreciate talking to you, my man. Thanks for reaching yeah. out across the uh, digital wall and bringing me into the bounce house. It was phenomenal. This is the most I've laughed with any, any guest I've talked to. I really appreciate it. You are a uh, amazing guy and just the little, the little dip into your world has been amazing. I wish you luck as you get back into school and uh, thanks again for your time. Thanks for listening today. And remember, you should never feel bad for telling your truth. So get out there and write. And if you've got a killer story, apply to be a guest on our show. Email me at jodyjsperling at gmail.com or find me on Facebook, Jody J. Sperling. And hey, there's no point in telling stories if nobody's listening.